My name is Elizabeth Bryan. I'm a senior scientist in the Environment and Production Technology Division here at IFPRI. And I'm very pleased to welcome you all to this seminar, Faster Than You Think, Renewable Energy in Developing Countries. I'm looking forward to hearing the discussion about renewable energy and the potential for the expansion of these technologies in developing countries. I'm pleased to welcome Channing Arndt, who is our first speaker today. He is the director of the Environment and Production Technology Division. And prior to this current position, he was a senior research fellow in the Development Strategies and Governance Division, also at IFPRI. Before joining IFPRI, he was a senior research fellow at the World Institute for Development Economics Research at the United Nations <coughs> University. Channing works extensively on clean energy transitions, among many other research areas, including climate change, poverty alleviation, and agricultural development. Channing, we look forward to your presentation. Thanks a lot, and thanks for coming today, and thanks for joining online. So um, my topic is faster than you think, the, the renewable energy revolution and, and developing countries. Um, this is work that I've done jointly with uh, Doug Arendt at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory here in the U.S., Faika Hartley and Bruno Mervin at the Energy Systems and Economics and Policy Group at the University of Cape Town, and Alam Mondal, who's at Daffodil University in Bangladesh. The paper is available as of a, a couple of, of days ago. So the, what the paper does is it goes back to 2009 and looks at what happened since then. And, and here is how we felt in, in 2009, pulling for clean energy. We're traveling around the world talking about CO2 emissions and, and uh, greenhouse gases. And perhaps it might be, you know, an idea to think about not emitting quite as much. And, and we're making, you know, not that much progress. And, and part of the reason is, um, this is work that I did in South Africa around 2010 is uh, the coal was, you know, relatively inexpensive. And so if you did a least cost projection of what is the energy mix for South Africa, this is what we did in 2010, all you need to know is the blue bars are, are coal, and, uh, and it stayed coal more or less as far as, as, far as the eye uh, could see. And this is, of course, without externalities such as, uh, you know, global warming and, and particulates and, and, and so forth. And we had a similar situation looking back. So this is coal use in the United States from about 1973 going forward to about 2009, towards, towards, you know, right around when the Copenhagen COP, COP15, was about to happen. I was there. We went to the Copenhagen COP, and it, and it famously fell apart. There was, there was no agreement. This is a very steady trend. You see the trend lines looking out, and this would be a fairly confident projection that this trend is, is, going, to, is going to continue. And what happened was that, actually. So coal use in the United States more or less peaked right around the Copenhagen COP and has been declining uh, ever since. Um, uh, on, on a monthly uh, basis, hasn't changed in, in the past year, year and a half. It, it continues to decline. And there's a lot of reasons behind this change in the, you know, the trend in, in, in coal use. And we're going to focus on only one, which is the renewable energy part, which is really more <laughs> responsible for the continuation of the trend than, than the beginning of it. Um, but, but that's where we're going to focus our energies here today. So we're going to go back and look a little more globally at what's been going on and take some examples from specific countries 
to, to illustrate the, the points. So we're going to take a global perspective to start. So first, we're going to pick on the um, U.S. Energy Information Agency. We could have picked on almost, almost uh, many, many other uh, organizations. So why do we say faster than you think in the title? And part of the reason is because you've been told that it's going to be going slowly over and over and over again. So and down in 2010 and 2009, there basically was no utility scale uh, voltaics in the United States. And the annual energy outlook said there wasn't going to be any for as far as the eye could see. Then there was a little bit, but well, no, it's not going to go up. And then, well, actually, there's more, but still, it's all going to stay flat. And again and again, until finally, we get a realization that this is actually starting to come into place. And, and there's a look at increasing penetration of photovoltaics in the United States and, and elsewhere. And why is that? There's a lot of reasons, but a big one is cost. So from 2010 to 2018, utility-scale PV uh, declined in cost by about a factor of four or five. So uh, 20 to 25 percent of the cost that you had nearly, nearly 10, 10 years ago. And that's been one of the big drivers. These are estimates from uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab without any subsidies or, or uh, you know, market interventions at all. And when you get down, these costs are becoming competitive. This is Lazard, their most recent uh, electricity sector assessment. And Lazard says, Lazard's an investment bank, uh, that wind is the cheapest power source in the United States unsubsidized on a levelized cost basis. Both solar PV uh, uh, are more are about at the same level, and they're very competitive with the cheapest source of generation in the U.S., which is, which is nat gas uh, at, at combined cycle. So it's a, it's a big change. We can look globally and not just estimations based on subsidies we, uh, or unsubsidized amounts. We can look at what people are actually paying to generate electricity. So there are electricity auctions, and this is what renewable energy providers are bidding on average in a global basis. And you're getting exactly the same trend, about a decline of about a factor of five in the bid price for renewable energy at, at auction, decline of a factor of about two for wind energy uh, bidding at auction. And because you can bid in 2017 to produce power in 2020, we get a forecast. And so those, those prices are going down. You can see it here. And actually solar, interestingly, crosses uh, wind this year and, and next year in this. And again, this is policy laden. Obviously, the bidders are bidding on the basis of the policy environment that, that exists. So all of this has had quite substantial impacts. So global investment in renewable energy, principally wind and solar, about $280 billion in 2017, the most, no the most recent number that we have. That's a big number. That's uh, around two-thirds of total investment in generation. About 61 percent of new net capacity is, uh, is renewable, and about 12 percent of global capacity today is, is renewable energy generation. That's, that's quite a lot. And it's had an effect. So on things that we care about, like fossil fuel emissions. So this is, these are fossil fuel emissions. The yellow bar is from the power sector. And it's pretty flat. And it wasn't flat really um, before. And it's related, to, and it's created some flatness, whoa, uh, up here in the total emissions. So 
uh, over the past four years, 2014 to 2017, total emissions have gone up by about 1.6%, while GDP has grown by about 9% on a global basis. And this is a pretty historic decoupling of emissions from, from GDP growth relative to what we've observed uh, before, and it's partly due to these, these structural transformations that are happening uh, in, in energy markets. So overall, what are we looking at? We still have rapid rates of technical advance, both in solar, wind, and in systems integration, which I'm going to talk about uh, shortly. Those levels are becoming quite competitive. So the more, the better you get, the more you're going to be able to displace at this point. It's not like it's twice as expensive and now it's only 150% the cost. It's, it's right there at the level where it's starting to compete. And the renewable energy share is becoming significant. Going from 3 to 6%, that's something. Going from 6 to 12%, that's something. But going from 12 to 24 and then 24 to 48, that's a big deal. And, uh, and that's what we're looking at right now. So the next two are much more important and a much bigger deal than the last two. And this really puts systems integration at center stage. If renewables are going to be a big share in power output, then we have to deal with their variability. You get, you get wind power generation when the wind blows and solar power generation from PVs when the sun shines, which is not necessarily when you want to turn on the lights or turn on your air conditioner. So it's a big challenge. So this is the systems integration challenge of matching supply with demand. And we're going about that in a number of ways. So just to show, actually, sorry, the, the variations. So this is, I go to the U.S. because there's good data. Uh, so the gray lines are daily outputs from the northern Midwest of wind power. And the red line is a 31-day moving average. So the gray lines are showing on a daily basis a lot of variation in electricity output. And the red lines are showing predictable seasonality in the production of electricity. In August, you're just getting a lot less. That doesn't mean you're not turning on your air conditioner in August. You have to, you have to deal with that uh, somehow. And the way that we're dealing with this is partly through size. Size in two ways. Size of the actual generation and the scope of the generation. This used to be a reasonably large wind turbine. The length of that, that turbine, this here, is about the same, is actually slightly longer than the length of a 747 jet. So it's, it's not a small uh, uh, turbine. Uh, and and it, it, they're getting up quite high. And this generates power more effectively. Again, we'll stick with the United States. So this is showing us data for the US. What's good for wind power? And the deeper the blue, the better the wind power location is. In the, in the US. And at an 80 meter hub height, the upper Midwest is good, which is why we focused on it. Uh, initially, it's been there for a while. Um, if you go to a 110 meter hub height, you expand substantially the area that's good for wind power. If you go to 140 meter hub height, which is more or less where we are today, this is mildly shorter than the Washington Monument, the, the, the hub, uh, and that makes almost the entire United States east of the Rockies good for wind power. And what this does, and this is very powerful, it creates a portfolio effect of generation. So if you're generating over a lot of space and you have the transmission capability to move it around, you end up with a much more stable 
set of outputs than you do from just one location, such as the upper Midwest. And this is one way, one really important way, for dealing with the systems integration challenge. Uh, we're getting bigger still, so the, you can go and buy yourself today an offshore GE Haliad X12 megawatt uh, turbine generator, and this one is substantially taller at the hub than the Washington Monument, and the blade length is about 50 percent more than, uh, than the 747. So these are, these are getting quite large, and these will have, this has a, a much, much higher capacity factor, which is what the stability that uh, both makes the economics better and makes the systems integration challenge less, less difficult. So these things are all coming. So globally looking forward, it's reasonable to project that we're going to get variable renewables representing increasing shares of the electricity generation mix. And those who are best able to profit from this energy revolution are going to have a different set of endowments. Instead of coal right here, you're going to need good wind, good sun. Uh, if you have a need for distributed power, this is nice because solar is naturally distributed. You don't have to generate it here and transmit it there. You can generate it in place, and you have to have the ability to systems integrate. So now we're talking about developing countries. I'm going to focus on Africa just to keep the conversation uh, within bounds. So we look forward to uh, perspectives on African energy futures. And I just said those who will profit are most likely to have endowments, solar and wind, need for distributed power, ability to system integrate. And I'm going to submit that this is broadly good news for Africa. And one of the reasons is, ah, I will look, and I'm going to focus on the South Africa case, both because I know it well and because there's a lot of good data in South Africa, and it's reasonably representative despite its particularities. So this is one of my favorite graphs. So this is a graph showing solar potential in South Africa compared to Germany. And it turns out the very worst spot in South Africa is better than the very best spot in Germany on an annual basis. So if you need to be producing power via, via solar, uh, uh, you, your, your endowments in South Africa are vastly better than those uh, in Germany. Uh, and this is, this is true more or less for the rest of the African continent as well. South Africa, this has been looked at more recently, also has very good wind resources. The deeper the red, the better the wind resource. And there's two nice things about South African wind resources. A, they're quite deep red, so they're good wind resources. And second, importantly, they're distributed all over the country. So it's possible to generate this portfolio of power generation from solar and from wind. That's a reasonably stable output. So that makes the systems integration challenge less. Relative to Germany, A, the, the, the endowments in wind aren't as good, and the endowments are all concentrated up here in the North Atlantic, which means the systems integration challenge is greater. You, you're getting, having reasonably consistent, uh, the winds will be the same in, in small areas, typically. So what this does for South Africa is using our model and two other models, two other groups independently, we all arrive at the same conclusions, that the least cost energy mix for South Africa migrates fairly rapidly towards 60 to 70 percent renewables penetration by about 2040, 2045. And what happens in every one of these models is as soon as a coal plant reaches the end of its useful life, it's retired and replaced with variable renewable energy. Uh, that's, that's what's going on. That is a wildly different world from this. 
This is the same model. It's just different technologies and different, different setups. But we're also getting serious transition issues. You see it in South Africa and you see it in many other places. Uh, we have institutions in South Africa and almost everywhere else that are basically designed to dig up coal from the ground, burn it in a nearby power plant and distribute it uh, via transmission wires, usually with a state-owned monopoly or some kind of heavily regulated private sector. It's a state-owned monopoly in the South African case. A decade ago, especially in the industry, there was some optimism that carbon capture and storage was going to come along and basically solve the problem. We would take the CO2, stick it in the ground, we don't need to change anything else that we do, and this is all going to work out. But it hasn't happened that way. What we have in place is a new paradigm reliant on variable renewable energy, and we have to deal with it in a, in a different way. So not surprisingly, there's resistance to changing this paradigm. In the South African Integrated Resource Plan, 10 years ago we had to put constraints to get renewable, variable renewable energy in. Now they have put constraints to keep variable renewable energy out. Uh, so they don't, in the official plan, they don't actually allow you to put in uh, as much energy as would go in on a least cost mix. Uh, we're able to show that this drives up your power price pretty substantially. More importantly, and this illustrates, I think, some of IFPRI's really unique modeling capabilities. We're really quite good at some of these things. Um, it just slows down your, your development pace. So uh, if you unconstrain the, the variable renewables and allow them to enter into the system, you end up with nearly 3 million more jobs by 2050. This is huge. The whole economy currently only employs about 14 million people, and they have a huge unemployment problem. Your GDP is also higher. I don't think this is going to last, but, but this is indicative of the kind of transition issues that we're facing. So we have large opportunities and large challenges. Rural electrification. I think genuine potential exists to extend electricity access to nearly the 1 billion, to the, you know, to the 1 billion people that lack it, consistent with the, with the SDG. We can do it, but it's not going to happen by itself. We're not treating that issue here. We did treat it in the Global Food Policy Report for, for 2019, and you can take a look at that to see, see how that's done. But we also just have energy and development in general. We're clearly capable of developing clean, reliable, low-cost systems, and actually they're very well suited to developing countries because you have the sun and the wind. Your endowments typically are very good, but you have to figure out how do systems integrate. Nobody's going to be happy if they can't turn on the lights when they want them, and you have to confront both entrenched interests, which we're getting, but also real people that are stuck in coal mines or other sectors that are going to be shrinking through time. So we need a just transition, uh, just transition from coal. So we have a lot to think about, uh, and there's a whole bunch of questions uh, that are really important. I think fresh thinking is the big thing and the missing ingredient here, or the really key ingredient to taking advantage of what's, of what's going on and what's available. You know, what are the policies, programs, and institutions that are required to realize this enormous potential for rural electrification? Elizabeth has done a bunch of work and others looking at what about electrification and gender relative roles within, within the household. We know this can be positive, but we know it's also not guaranteed to be such. How do we do it in a way that actually works positively uh, for women's empowerment? 
If you have a, a, a solar panel and an electric pump, you can pump, pump, pump. Um, what's going to happen to all the groundwater? You're pumping at almost zero marginal cost. Uh, how are we going to deal with that issue? Um, how do we deploy hydropower? Many of the countries we work in, Ethiopia, all of the whole Zambezi River Valley, have big hydropower installations. How is this going to work also in, also in Asia? There are real opportunities here, but also real issues. You don't want your hydropower dumping more electricity into a market when wind and solar is already providing uh, a great deal. How do we interact, build plans for the whole economy with the rural economy? We have possibility to basically drop a mini grid that's relatively efficient almost anywhere. How does that interact with our overall uh, build plans? Um, we have considerable benefits, and this I think is under researched, broader power uh, question. Uh, you know, in the countries in which we work, in developing countries, what is power demand going to be in 10 years? Well, I mean, if it's Norway, we have a pretty good idea. But if it's South Africa or Mozambique or, you know, Zimbabwe, uh, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. There's a huge range. But we have to anticipate it because we want a coal-fired power plant to satisfy that demand. We have to start building it now if we're going to get to the power, have the power in seven to ten years. Whereas with a wind farm or a solar farm, we can add a new turbine or a new set of panels. We can have it there in three to four months. So it's hard to match supply and demand on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, but matching supply and demand with your overall macro growth trends is a lot easier with these modular systems. We have to account for that. Um, and finally, what are the institutions and regulatory frameworks that are necessary to accommodate this uh, substantial DRE uh, dependence? So those are the things that I wanted to talk about, and thank you for your attention.